kindergartners were studying the creation story. And after several weeks, the teacher wanted to do some review of what they had been studying. What did God make the first day? And the teacher asked, how about the second day? The class answered both correctly. And what happened on the third day? Little child face shining with enthusiasm exclaimed, he rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the amen of all of God's promises. We celebrate on this first day of the week that Jesus Christ came back to life on the first day of the week. The empty tomb of Christ has been the cradle of the church. J.I. Packer said it this way, the victim of Calvary is now loose and at large. The best news, news that the world has ever received came out of a graveyard. This morning, I'd like to invite you to join us as we continue our series this morning on the great I Am statements of the book of John. We started a series a number of weeks ago entitled The Great I Am, and we've been looking at the book of John. The book of John is a book that has been given to us to prove the fact that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be. The book of Matthew presents him as the king over the nation of Israel. The book of Mark presents him as the servant that serves. The book of Luke presents him as the man, fully man. And then John presents him as the God, fully God. And there are some unbelievable statements. No, they are believable statements that the Scriptures give us by way of what he says about himself. He makes statements like this, I am the bread of life in John chapter 6, verse 35. In John chapter 8, verse 12, he's going to say, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 10, verse 7 and verse 12, Jesus is going to say, I am the door or I am the gate for the sheep. In John chapter 11, we saw that he is the good shepherd. And if you take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 11, we find yet another statement that Jesus is going to make about himself. And it's a statement that's going to revolutionize our thinking about life and about birth and life and death because he's going to say in John chapter 11, he's going to say that he is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is attending a memorial service for his good friend Lazarus. Lazarus had been dead for some four days and Jesus is going to come into the setting of this memorial service, and he's going to make this proclamation in John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? There are some wonderful things about this chapter in John 11 that help us identify and help us to understand who Jesus Christ is. If you have the outline that you find in your bulletin this morning, you're going to find some observations that we're going to go through. There are five that I'd like to share with you from this portion of Scripture, John chapter 11. The first observation that we see, let's begin reading in chapter 11, verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. 
This Mary, whose brother Lazarus was now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Again, the setting is that Jesus is coming into a funeral, a memorial for his good friend Lazarus. The city of Bethany was located approximately two miles from Jerusalem. In fact, it was two miles east. If you lived in Bethany where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived, if you walked over the hill approximately two miles, if we walked from here to downtown Holland, that's about the distance that you could walk from Bethany to the city of Jerusalem. Probably when Jesus visited the city of Jerusalem, most likely he probably spent time with these three close friends that he had in Bethany. It maybe was the place that he stayed when he visited the city of Jerusalem. This is approximately a week before he's going to enter the city of Jerusalem and he's going to ride on a donkey and he's going to proclaim himself to the nation of Israel and say, I am your king. And the people of Israel are going to lay down the palm branches and we know the celebration, we celebrate it every year when he comes into the city and they proclaim him as their king. Now the people said that, but the people of uh, the, the religious rulers did not. This is about a week before Jesus comes into the city. And he is late to this invitation that was given to him to come to see his good friend Lazarus. One of the things that we find out in this text, I believe, when we see Jesus making this proclamation about being the resurrection and the life, the first thing that we need to understand is before we understand resurrection, we need to understand death. We need to understand why there is death. There is birth, there is life, there is death, and then there's going to be resurrection. All of us have a birthday. All of us celebrate sometime when we came into the world. We all know what it's like to have a birthday. We all are here and we're experiencing life, but none of us have experienced death yet in the sense that we have died. Nobody has come back to tell us what that experience is like. Why is there death? Why do we live in a world that has death? For us to understand resurrection, I believe we first have to understand what death is. Death is a consequence of disobedience. Let's keep our finger here in John chapter 11 and let's turn back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, and let's go back to the very beginning. Because when God created Adam in the garden, there was no death. Adam lived in a perfect environment. Adam lived in a place that was the Garden of Eden. God put him in this garden and allowed him to live in a perfect environment where there was no suffering, there was no death, everything was hunky-dory. It was heaven on earth. And when God created Adam, he put him in this beautiful garden. And notice what God told Adam. Eve had not been created yet. 
In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, look at what God says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Humanity is here to take care of what God has created. From the very beginning, God placed us, humanity, in his created world to take care of the resources that God has given us. And that's all of the resources. That's why Adam was placed in the garden. God could have taken care of it by himself, but God gave Adam the freedom and also the opportunity to become the hands and the feet of God and to take care of what God created. Passage says in verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free, you have freedom, Adam, to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And then the passage goes on, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Adam heard it from God. God told him, Adam, if you touch this, no, not if you touch it, if you partake of it, that's what he told Eve. In chapter 3, Adam doesn't tell her the news. Just don't even touch it, Adam. God told him, don't touch, don't take of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you do, you will surely die. Eve is then created from the rib of Adam, and we find that Lucifer, the great one that comes to deceive, comes not to Adam, but he comes to Eve and says, Eve, did God really say that? You didn't hear God say that. And that's true. She didn't hear it. She heard it from Adam. Adam told Eve, we're not to partake of this tree of good, of uh, the knowledge of good and evil. And so she was deceived. But Adam went into it with his eyes wide open. He knew exactly what he was doing. And they partook of what God said they were not to partake of. And the consequence of the world that we live in today is that we live in a cursed world that has been touched by the sin of disobedience. That spirit that is in Adam has now been passed down to each of us, and that is why death is all around us. Look at what God says in Genesis chapter 3. Could it be that death is really a blessing? In that God says in Genesis 3 verse 21, after God pulls the curses and places the curse upon um, Adam and Eve and upon Lucifer. He says in verse 21, the Lord God made garments of sin, of skin, for Adam and Eve and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and to take also from the tree of the life of life and to eat and to live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Verse 24, and after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Had Adam and Eve partaken of the tree of life in their sin, they would have lived forever in the cursed world sin. And friends, would we want to live in this kind of world 
a cursed sin world forever? God's grace is displayed in death. Maybe we don't think of death in that way. But in some ways, God graces us by understanding that, yes, there's death because of sin, because of disobedience, but sin brings about an end by way of death. The resurrection of Christ, as we're going to see, is going to bring us to the reality of the truth of what Jesus Christ did for us. Death is part of our world. God's care for humanity was not to leave us in this condition. The resurrection is the answer, as we're going to see. C.S. Lewis says it this way, Jesus has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. Death, as we're going to learn is going to be swallowed up by one man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, in making this proclamation that he's the resurrection, behind that is filled all of this understanding of the world that we live in. It's a cursed world that has death written all over it. Every day we experience it. Every day we see it. Every day we smell it. Every day is part of what death is. Wouldn't you love to live in this kind of world forever? Not me. Please, Lord, rescue me from this. Is there an answer to the question of death? And as we go back to John chapter 11, we find a second characteristic that I would like to draw your attention to here by way of Jesus making this proclamation, I am the resurrection and the life. The second thing that we need to understand about this world is that the timing of God's will has purpose and meaning. Look at in John chapter 11 here, Jesus is told that his good friend Lazarus is sick and they were hoping that he would come. I mean, He had done miracles up to this point. He had given sight to the blind. He had even raised young kids from the dead. Couldn't there possibly be that Jesus would come and heal Lazarus from his sickness? And so Mary and Martha, they asked Jesus to come. Jesus purposely stays away for two days. Why? Why does he stay away for two days? The Bible tells us in John 11, verse 4, Jesus said it this way. He said to his disciples, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Look at chapter 11, verse 14. A second reason that he tells the disciples as to why he needs to wait in verse 14 Lazarus is dead. He tells him forthright, and for your sake I'm glad that I am not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. There is within this story, this mystery of God's uh, time and his clock being much different than what their clock was. 
Jesus purposely stays away for the sake of bringing glory to his Father. I think oftentimes my clock is set on my time frame, not always God's time frame. I find that oftentimes my heart wants things to happen much more quickly than what God does. It seems like God's clock is just set back, not, not just hours, but sometimes days, sometimes months where we wait on God and it seems so slow. The psalmist cries out oftentimes about questioning the heart and the time frame of God. God, how long do I have to wait? Again, keep your finger here in John 11. We're going to come back, but look at Psalm, Psalm chapter 4. There's a number of Psalms early on in the book of Psalms. As we learned in the family Bible hour this past week, that the book of Psalms is really a proclamation of prayers that the psalmist gives before God. Look at Psalm chapter 4, verse 1. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Look at chapter 6, verse three, verse 1 through 3. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am faint. O Lord, hear me, for my bones are in agony. Why are they in agony? My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord, how long? The psalmist is crying out and his soul and his bones ache because he's waiting for God to do something. Look at Psalm chapter 10. These are just a couple of examples of the soul crying out to God and waiting for him. Look at Psalm chapter 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Look at Psalm 13, verse 1 and 2. Psalm 13 begins, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts, and every day have sorrow in my heart. How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer me, O Lord. If this isn't the cry of our heart at times, where we with the psalmist say, God, when are you going to act? When are you going to deal with this situation that I'm dealing with? The days just seem like months, and the months sometimes seem like years, and we wait upon the Lord. And in the midst of the bigger picture, we see that God's clock is oftentimes, friends, set at a different pace than what our clocks are set at. And we need to fall back. And we need to remind ourselves of the bigger picture. Here in John chapter 11, we see that there was something that was much greater and much bigger that was going on in the life of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. For them, their loved one had died. And they were in sorrow for that, and rightfully so. 
but we see here that God's timing is oftentimes much different than ours. Going back to John chapter 11, there's a third characteristic here that I'd like to draw your attention to. The fact that we need to understand where death comes from, we need to understand that God's clock is much different. We need to also see that, uh, thirdly, we see here that Jesus makes reference here to what uh, he responds to this great phrase that is found in John chapter 11. Many of us know the verse, verse 35. Jesus understands fully the grief and the sorrow of death. What he says here is very profound. In the midst of this setting, he comes finally to the funeral and he's late. Mary and Martha both respond to him and Martha meets him out before he gets into the town and he says, she says to him, Lord, why didn't you come sooner? Mary does not meet him. Mary stays behind. I think Mary is dealing with her grief. Maybe there's something there that she's not ready yet to talk to Jesus. She had been let down. He had not done what she thought he was going to do. But finally, when he does show, he sees the grief. And notice what the Bible says here in verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And the Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? I want you to notice here that Jesus understands fully the grief and the sorrow of death. We have here a picture of not only the resurrected one who will eventually resurrect, because really what Lazarus is, is a prototype to what Jesus is going to do a week later. What Jesus is going to do to his good friend Lazarus is going to be the miracle that the Jews demanded because the Jews demand a sign. You make the proclamation that you're the resurrection Jesus, okay, give us the sign. And he's going to bring his good friend Lazarus back to life. In the midst of that, Jesus is going to come and he's not going to miss their grief. I don't believe that Jesus wept here because of Lazarus. In fact, when you see the Jews here, they thought it was because he had such a deep love for Lazarus. The Jews and the Jewish leaders got it wrong, and they missed a lot of what Jesus did. They just didn't see through what he was doing. The Bible tells us here, I believe, why he had the grief. The Bible tells us here in verse 33 that when Jesus saw her weeping, that is her good, his good friend Mary and Martha, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, they replied. And as he came to see the Jesus, he wept. Jesus cried 
for the sorrow that those who were in the midst of their grief, I believe he was feeling that with them. Friends, we have a Savior who understands grief and sorrow and pain and disappointment like no one else. I don't believe that in the language of the believer there is ever a place for us to say nobody understands. Nobody understands what I'm going through. Because we have one, Jesus, Jesus Christ, who understands fully what we go through in our grief and our disappointment, and daily we die. Daily there are times where we die and we smell the stench of death in our experience. We're disappointed and we feel it. And he feels it with us. In fact, I submit to you that Jesus, when he died on the cross... The Bible will describe death as us falling asleep. When Jesus died, I believe that he died tasting death fully for us like we will never taste it because he fully drank the cup of God's wrath and he drank it to its fullest and he tasted the bitterness and the agony and the suffering of what real death is, separation. Not just our body from our spirit, but separation from our spirit to his spirit. Oh God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out on the cross. And at that point, in those three hours of suffering, when it became deathly dark, and when they watched him crucified, they saw him, and they watched him, and they saw it become deathly dark, and he cried out, God, my Father, why have you forsaken me? And there was a separation that took place between the Father and the Son that we will never taste. He tasted it for us. And that bitterness, that death, that grief, that sorrow will be what we experience. And we have one who understands. We have one who fully understands. Our faith in Christ gives us a Savior who says, I understand. I think the songwriter has said it well when the songwriter says, no one understands like Jesus. The words to that old hymn goes like this, no one understands like Jesus. He's a friend beyond compare. Meet him at the throne of mercy. He is waiting for you there. No one understands like Jesus when the days are dark and grim. No one is so near, so dear as Jesus. Cast your every care on him. Verse 2 says, No one understands like Jesus. Every woe he sees and feels tenderly, he whispers comfort. And the broken heart, he heals. That's our Savior. That's our resurrected one. This is the one that understands and fully understands the grief and the sorrow that we go through in a world that has been cursed with death. The hymn writer, the other hymn writer, says it well when we are told that he is the man of sorrows. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. 
what a Savior. The truth that Jesus Christ understands. The truth that Jesus Christ knows. And that's why Peter will say in 1 Peter 5, we saw this a number of months ago, cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. John chapter 11 reminds us that Jesus weeps and knows our sorrow and our pain. There is a fourth observation that I want to call your attention to here from John chapter 11. And that is this fourth observation is that there is a resurrection from the dead for all mankind. If Jesus Christ came back from the dead, which we believe and we preach and we say with no reservations that yes, he did this. He died for our sins, he was buried and he rose again. If that is true, or because it is true, the reality is that all humanity will be raised from the dead. Look at chapter 11, verse 43, the end of the story here. When he had said this, that is when he brought Lazarus back to, uh, to life, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. You talk about a scary movie here. You can't write a script any better. And most of us don't like these kind of movies that the dead come back to life and we see the mummies walking around. Here's a biblical mummy. Here is Lazarus literally wrapped in the linens of the death cloths that he now comes out. Lazarus, come forth. Fortunately, he just called Lazarus' first name. He didn't call all the names. <laughs> Humanity come forth. But in calling Lazarus out, it gives us a picture of what he's going to do a week later. This is for the Jews the miracle that they, pro that they need. And here's the miracle. Jesus brings back the dead. And Lazarus comes forth. And he comes out and Jesus said to them, look at what Jesus says in verse 44. Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Do you know that Lazarus becomes a marked man after this experience? We don't know how Lazarus died the second time. But if you skip over to chapter 12 of John, look at what the Bible does tell us about Lazarus. The Jews become irate about this resurrection story. In chapter 12, verse 9, meanwhile, this is after uh, Lazarus is resurrected. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and he came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Verse 10, so the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. The Jews wanted to get rid of Lazarus a second time because they knew that this story, <laughs> he was once dead, don't let this story get out, <laughs> And so the Jews make plans to find Lazarus and put him to death. We don't know what happened to Lazarus, but we know he's a marked man. And the Jews are out to kill him just like they were for Jesus. We find here that the resurrection of Lazarus will be a picture of the resurrection of Christ, which will be, my friend, a picture of the reality for all humanity. Through one sin of disobedience through Adam, all die. That's us. Through the resurrection of one man, Jesus Christ, all humanity will be brought back to life. 
and there is a resurrection now for all of us. We know what birth is. We've got a birthday. We know what life is. We're doing it. We know what death is. We're experiencing it. We're going to experience death physically. In the Nobody's getting out of here alive, not unless the rapture happens. But all of us are going to die, and all of us will be resurrected. That's what Jesus is saying here by way of coming back to life. Take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Corinthians. Pastor Matt read this for us earlier, but let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for just a moment and look at this, this great resurrection passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. The gospel is given here in chapter 15. Paul is going to identify what the gospel is in verse 3. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. This is the first important thing, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. There is the gospel. What do we know about the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins and that He was buried and that He came back to life. And now He's going to identify the resurrection in this great, Chapter, look at verse 15, chapter 15, verse 12. But if it be preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14. For if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we then are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him if, in fact, the dead were not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Notice this, you're still in your sins. You're still in your death. If Christ had not been raised from the dead, our sins would not have been paid for. The affirmation that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be. Remember the book of John. I am the great I am, he says. Here's the statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection. All of these statements make us see that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be, and he's God. He came back to life for us. And Jesus Christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Our sin needs to be paid for. And that sin was paid for at the cross. His death became our death. And now his resurrection becomes our resurrection. And because of his resurrection, we have life. Look at what it says in verse 20 of chapter 15. For Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits, the first fruits. He's the first one to be resurrected of those who have fallen asleep. The Bible always describes death as us falling asleep. Don't you love it when you lay down at night? Some of the best moments in the day are when you're just about ready to fall asleep and you're just about ready to go into la-la land. Isn't that a great time? Death for us will be falling asleep in him and waking up into an eternity that the Bible says is undescribable, hard to put into words. In fact, Paul had an out-of-body experience, and he tried to describe it. Look at 2 Corinthians a moment. Let's just take a moment and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 
Look at what Paul tries to describe here to this church in Corinth. Paul was trying to make a case for his authority as an apostle. But he doesn't want to boast about himself, so he puts himself in the third uh, person here in this chapter. He talks about a man who he knows who's himself who had an out-of-body experience. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting. You want me to boast, Corinth? You want me to give you why I need to put my authority as, a, as an apostle down? That's what they were asking for? You want me to boast? Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. Verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, he's talking about himself, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things. Things that man is not permitted to tell. I'm afraid, friends, that if we saw what's on the other side, we would let go of the strong grip that we have on this life. And when we see the bigger picture, we see that, yes, there's birth. Yes, there's life. Yes, there's death. But there's resurrection. And we hold this life loosely. And sometimes the grip of our soul wanting to hold on so tight, God just says, but I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? But I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? Because if there is no resurrection, then we need to hold on to this life really hard because this is all that we have. And if that's the case, then this life, if this is all that we have, then we are most men pitied. That's what Paul is going to say. This out-of-body experience that the Apostle Paul has here in 2 Corinthians, maybe that's what changed his life, totally re revolutionized his whole life from one that just saw what was in front to what was around us and for us and what is yet future for us, the believer. And Paul says there is a resurrection from the dead, not just for the believer, but friends, the reality is that in Revelation Chapter 20, if this is true, that all will be resurrected, then there also is a resurrection for those that don't believe. And we find in Revelation chapter 20, we're going to get to that chapter on Sunday nights. We're going through the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 19 tonight. Next week, we're going to be in chapter 20. The reality is that all humanity will stand before the throne. They will be resurrected, and the books will be opened. And if your name, my name, is written in the book of life, we have eternal life with him for all eternity. For those that are not written in the book of life, there's a casting away and there's a separation. That's called the second death. And I don't mean to scare us out of hell, but the reality is the Bible teaches that because Jesus Christ is the resurrection, you will definitely be resurrected whether you believe in him or not. That's what the Bible teaches. So the reality of where we spend eternity is based on what we do with Jesus Christ. Do we believe this? Going back to John chapter 11. Go back there for just one last observation. When you look at John chapter 11, there's this great statement that he makes, and we'll read it again in verse 25, we find that Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. 
And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asked this question, do you believe this? And Martha here has asked that question, and what's her response? Look at verse 27. Yes, Lord. She told him, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Why did he come into the world? To die for our sins. Why did he die for our sins? Because he had to pay the punishment of our sin, and then he came back to life. And now the resurrection is now provided for any who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There is that hope and the assurance of the resurrection. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Christ died for your sins? Friends, I am, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that our religious system of what we believe to be our religious system, either it means coming to church or doing whatever we need to do to somehow appease to God, that that religious system becomes what we put our faith and our trust in. And I would suggest to you that it's believing in Christ. Christ is the answer for our soul. It's all about him. It's all about what he claims to be and what he has done for us. Believe in him. Put your faith in him. I'm afraid that many of us, some of us maybe believe that, well, if I put my faith and my trust in him, that when I give my heart fully to him, that he's going to somehow, he's going to, you know, make me a missionary or he's going to make me a, you know, we have this idea that once I do that, oh, no, you know, what is he going to do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him to see where he's going to lead you and where he's going to take you and where you're going to be called to do whatever that ministry is, whether it be a businessman or a housewife, all of those are callings that God places on our hearts to represent him in our world to let other people know that Jesus Christ is the answer. Christ is the resurrection and the life. The resurrection of Jesus demands not our applause but our allegiance, not our compliments but our commitment to him because of his commitment to us. Christ has done it all. Do you believe that? You don't need to add anything or subtract anything. Pledge your allegiance to Christ. In fact, can I ask you to be tattooed for him? Did you see the story his last couple of days? I've been watching the, the debates, and there was a man who owned a, a tattoo parlor, and he's never voted before for a presidential candidate. This is his first time that he's voting, but because of his commitment to the person that he's going to vote for, he had a tattoo placed on the back of his calf. <laughs> and the interviewer asked him, yeah, but now that you're tattooed, are you really committed to this person that you're going to vote for? And he says, I'm all in. I'm tattooed. <laughs> I mean, how are you going to remove the tattoo? I don't know if they can do that. But once you're tattooed, you're all in. And he basically had on the back of his calf the candidate that he's going to vote for. <laughs> and I guess he's going to live and die with that candidate. <laughs> Good riddance to you. <laughs> I don't know. Are you tattooed by the Spirit of God? Have you come to the place where you can answer this question? Do you believe this? Yes, I can. My faith and my trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I've given my life to him because he gave his life to me. We don't have to work for our salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. And now the hope is I have a birth I live life, there's death, but there's resurrection. And that resurrection is the resurrection that the believer holds on to. That someday, Paul says it this way, someday we will be resurrected with bodies like his resurrected body.
We will be given new bodies. And this body that's being broken down and the older that we get, the more we understand that sometimes we understand that death is a gift of God or death is a gift that God gives us and that we can believe that there's something greater that God has given us by way of the resurrection. Do you believe this? Let's bow our hearts and our heads in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the privilege it is to be known by Christ. And Father, I pray that this morning that we might leave this place with the truth and the reality that we believe that Christ is the one who he claimed to be and that he died for our sins and he rose again. Father, I pray that today would be a day that if we haven't taken that step of faith, that we put our faith and our trust in him and say like Martha, yes, Lord, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who has come into the world to die for my sin. And I believe that. I embrace that. Father, thank you for this good news. Thank you for this great story of resurrection of Lazarus. And thank you for the truth that Christ came back to life after he died for our sins. And we give you thanks, Father, for yet another week that we can celebrate and to know the joy of resurrection. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.